Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. All right, welcome everybody once again to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. Awesome guest today, Matter Agarwal, friend of mine who has been with Pearson as the Chief Digital Officer until very recently, where he's taken a really cool new role as the general manager and senior vice president of the skills platform at a really cool ed tech company called Pluralsight. As I mentioned before that, he spent several years as the CDO, chief digital officer of Pearson, which is the largest education company in the world, major publisher of everything from textbooks to all kinds of amazing digital learning materials for K to 12 and especially a secondary education and higher education. And before that, uh, he spent 10 years at SAP in charge of the SAP digital commerce platform. So he has been around the block of digital transformation from many sides, from the side of companies who are providing tools to enterprises delivering digital transformation to driving it at one of the largest companies in his industry to now you know, being a, an ed tech company delivering platforms and technologies from that more kind of a pure play side. So a lot of different perspectives. I'm looking forward to talking and exploring all of that. Would you like to add anything to my introduction? No, thanks. Thanks, Howard. Uh, super excited to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I know many of us are discussing what the future of digital transformation looks like, what the future of education looks like, and I'm happy to contribute a couple of uh, my thoughts into, into the mix. Yeah, well, let's start there because you've spent at least the last few years so focused in this area of education. And I have five kids, as you know, so I have all the way from a, a college sophomore down to a second grader. So I've gotten a firsthand look at education during COVID and it sucks, man. It sucks. <laughs> so it, it is hard, definitely, correct? Uh, with, with everything that is going on, education and, and trying to homeschool kids, trying to actually make sure that we are trying to live on Zoom and trying to coordinate all of that definitely has been challenging to say the least. But I've also seen a lot of innovation happen in that space mm -hmm. uh, over, over the last eight, 10 months, in fact. Well, yeah, I think that's fair too. And maybe I was being a little bit coarse in my, in my judgment of everything. It's actually been interesting to me that so many industries have been so successful. I hear this story in so many industries of, you know, we had to move everything remote practically overnight and we're amazed at how well it went. You know, companies where all their employees are working remotely on Zoom, on Slack, on Google Drive or whatnot. And everybody's amazed that in the course of what really was just a few weeks for most companies, they were back up productive. And yet the schools, while they were productive in the sense of they got classes running quickly, it definitely, uh, I think most students and teachers would agree, has been uh, painful and not that feeling. Like a lot of business people that I talk to who are in office jobs working at home are like, I never want to go back, you know? Whereas I'm not hearing that from teachers. I'm not hearing that from students. Any thoughts about why education is so different from so many other areas? The reason, simple reason is that a lot of education is about experience. It's mm -hmm. about community. In fact, if in education, what happens inside the classroom is only half of the equation that happens outside the classroom. If you and I go back, three decades and look at our experience in going to college, uh, I think the lot of life experiences that we gained, a lot of the friendships that we gained were outside of that classroom. And then frankly, the, the mistakes that we made outside of that classroom have made us a better professional. So I think those are the reasons why I know that learners and students want to go back and teachers by definition enjoy that 
interaction. They love to see a student brighten up, light up in the classroom. And there's something about being an educator that actually is gratifying that a Zoom screen, as much as Zoom has helped us achieve all of that, it's not possible. I agree. I agree. And you mentioned some of the innovations you've seen. Are there particular things you want to point out or applaud or give props to where you think an innovation has really helped during this transition in COVID? Yeah, I think there are a couple that I like to sort of highlight. The first is, and this is not a technology innovation, correct? We need to think of innovation is around technology. The first innovation is just about the adaptability of society at large, per se. And you think of adaptability, we naturally think of adaptability in terms of professionals who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, correct, even later in life. But you think of adaptability of a five, six-year-old, you're talking about a second grader, getting a second grader to sit at one place for three, four, five years, lo and behold, like eight hours, it to me is, is innovation. Having a teacher to engage with them is innovation. Related to that is the notion that learning cannot be done to you. Right? The notion of synchronous and asynchronous learning, that to me is definitely innovation. From a technology perspective, I think what we are trying to see is finally actually platforms being built. So Zoom, as an example, is starting to build platform for education, not just for two-way communication per se. Hey, how does collaboration truly happen in there? And to me, that is like just from a mass scale perspective, there are some innovations that are happening that are interesting. And by the way, there's a lot that is in the works. There's more venture capital money that has gone in the ed tech space in the last six, seven, eight months than frankly went in before in what was considered a very dogmatic and sleepy industry. Interesting. Yeah, I can imagine a good place to have a startup right now or uh, be working in a tech company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that is definitely true that tech is leading that evolution in fact, the way I view it is tech is only accelerating what was a macro trend happening in the education space, this move towards what I refer to as and what many people refer to as move towards lifelong learning. Yes, I definitely want to get to lifelong learning because I know that's your focus now. Before we turn there, I want to talk a little more about your time at Pearson because so many of our listeners, I know from the questions they ask, are in roles at large companies. A lot of our listeners are big enterprises and they're trying to push that boulder up the hill, trying to drive innovation at large organizations where that's not always easy. I'd love to hear a little bit about what were some of the most interesting things you worked on at Pearson and what were any challenges you faced? I'm only assuming you face challenges because I know at most large enterprises, people do, <laughs> especially any, any things you learned or any, any good stories that you could share with our listeners that are educational parables, which we're always interested in hearing <laughs> about, about how to make it work in the challenge of driving transformation innovation within large companies. Yeah. So Pearson, just to give said everyone context, uh, largest education publisher in the, in the world, roughly four-ish billion in, in revenue in roughly 70 countries. But this is also a company that has existed for nearly two centuries. And let me repeat that, two centuries, correct? They've gone through a lot of incarnations during that time. When I joined, they were very much focused on the traditional education system. So if you think about the education system you talked about in the U.S., which is K-12, to which is, again, a very U.S.-centric term. K-12 to is not a term that we use outside of the U.S., but let's call that metaphor of actually going to pre-college. And then the, the college space, the higher education space, that's, that's where their majority of the, of the focus was. So they were dealing with institutions, the large universities. There are 3,000 of those, as an example, just in the U.S. And how do you actually evolve the model to focus, one, instead of focusing on the institution, to focusing on the learner? 
So that was a fundamental demand side shift, if you will. How do you take your business model from B to B to B to B to C, right? Which I know many of us in large companies face. And the second was, hey, how do you actually have all all of your innovation from a product perspective to move into the digital age? Today, digitally, we are not reading books as an example. I know you have a winning book, though. I encourage everyone to read that. Read books, everybody. Yeah. My, my point being that many of us are consuming content, consuming media digitally, and we are not consuming it physically. So the, how do you evolve the textbook, which has a learning science behind it, which is the pedagogy behind it, and how do you bring it into a digital age? But again, as I said, the first and foremost was how do you actually start to focus on the end user? Yeah. Simple things. They didn't have an e-commerce presence. How do you deal with They used to touch 100 million learners on an annual basis but they only knew less than 10% of them. How do you start to actually understand if you want to talk about the notion of engaging with them over a life of learning, if you don't know them, if you don't engage with them, if you don't personalize their experience, e-commerce has been there for almost two decades and Pearson didn't have that presence. Well, there are a lot of industries where you have that challenge. You know, if you sell frosted flakes, you know, you distribute to grocery stores and you don't know, you know, take my book. My book gets sold mostly on Amazon. I don't know who buys it. I hope that they contact me, but honestly, I don't have any direct commerce experience. You can buy the book directly from me, by the way, but that's not the <laughs> Of course, most people go to Amazon, which is fine. Yeah. So how did you solve that problem or at least attack that problem? So the way you attack the problem is at three levels. The first is you actually have to align that at a strategy. The business model shift is not going to happen if you are not aligned with the CEO, the CFO, the chief strategy officer, and the board on the strategic shift that happens. So we started that conversation at the board level. In fact, Pearson just announced a direct-to-consumer business unit like just last week, right? So that was a conversation that I initiated in 2018 at the board level to say, hey, if we are going to be focusing on the 100 million learners, how do we start to have that? Because without that sort of support, it will be very difficult. The second is what I talk about winning the hearts and minds of the organization, the cultural change. And that requires a lot of evangelism. And I know a lot of people actually say that is hard and that is definitely hard, but I spent a lot of my time on the plane. So Pearson's headquarters of London, I was there practically every three to four weeks, if not more, correct? I've, I've done a lot of trips out there and winning hearts and minds of people. And finally, actually being very clear that what I refer to as PowerPoint doesn't compile very well and business cases don't lead to outcomes, correct? So how do you drive that? So I drove the notion of customer-faced outcomes and developing this notion of agile, developing this notion of actually we will do launches and testing and so on, establishing for the first time in Pearson the notion of uh, digital product management as a discipline and experience design as a discipline. So those are some of the things that I did to actually move the needle forward. Yeah, I'd like to actually follow up on many of those, but I'll pick one, which is winning hearts and minds. So I get how going there, being in London, being with the executives is one part of the recipe. But what else did you find it took? I imagine you tried different things, maybe some worked better than others. What did you find was the most successful way of winning hearts and minds? I think I'm still learning on what it takes to win hearts and minds, because that is about the hardest thing as an exec to be able to do in any setup. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you have to win hearts and minds at multiple levels. You have to win at the exec and peer set level, mm-hmm. and then you have to win at the team level. Yeah. What I find is that at the team level, people want vision. 
people actually want to know what the North Star is. They actually can rally behind that very easily. I'm yet to find in any company where people wake up and say, hey, I want to do my average work today. Or I actually want to be on the losing team today, right? Like overall, I think people work for companies, especially in education, where mission's a big part of why people join the organizations. Mm -hmm. They're very purpose-driven. They're very mission-driven. And you have to give them, hey, how commercial success is part of that vision. And they get excited behind it. They may not know how to get from here to there, which is the next step you have to do, but you actually have to lay that out. The execs, the board and the execs get behind it because, hey, they're they're chartered with that. What I find is this layer in between at your peer set level overall, that is about the hardest because that is where the phenomena of who moved my cheese happen <laughs> per se, correct? Because when, when you're trying to transform, some people are going to win and some people are going to lose, but the customer is going to win always. And you have to understand that. I, I don't think it is enough to say that the customer will win is enough for those people. And you have to understand the organization dynamics and the politics, and you have to figure out who you align with and who you actually ignore. Some people will be offended and that is okay. You will need to step on some toes. If you haven't offended some people, you're probably not making progress fast enough in my mind. Ah, that's a quotable meme. I like that. It's kind of like I have this philosophy. If I never miss a flight, I'm spending too much time waiting around airports. I like that. I like that. (laughs) But I like yours even more. If you haven't offended somebody, you're probably not driving your, what was it again? You're probably not. You're not pushing fast enough. Not pushing fast enough. Yeah, no, I think that makes good sense. Well, let's let's move on to your current company and the broader theme. So why don't you just tell everybody a little bit about the company that you're with now and the role that you're playing and then this whole issue that I know you're very passionate about, perhaps the most important type of learning we have now, which is supplanting, in my opinion, the importance of institutional learning, which is this idea of continuous learning. Yeah. So in September, I had the opportunity to join Pluralsight, which is one of the largest ed tech players in the tech skill space. So they focus purely on the tech skill space. It's a global company out of Utah, roughly two, two and a half billion in market cap, roughly 400 million or so in revenue, 2000 people that is focused on democratizing tech skills. And I've joined them in their product organization to help them evolve and scale for what the next phase of growth looks like and how to take a digital native and help it scale to being a billion dollar or more enterprise in that sense. But the largest player, many of the largest financial services firms, many of the largest retailers actually use Pluralsight to drive digital transformation, the topic that we've been talking about in their organizations. They are using this to upskill, reskill, and actually define their skill strategy for their organizations as they move from the world of analog to digital. And so tell me if I've got the right idea here, but essentially someone logs in and there's a library of videos to learn some specific technology or some specific technique that is technical. What is different today? Like I think back 10 years ago, you know, people had access to things like lynda.com or whatever. Now, you know, LinkedIn, what's, what's the state of the art of that? What makes a platform like that really, you know, state of the art today? So what makes that state of the art is three things. First is the basics. The basics you talk, hey, just think of the notion of someone logging in and they have access to content, correct? Videos, again, breadth of content, quality of content, richness of content, 
it still matters, right? Like when, when people have that, if they wanna go deep into Python as an example, or go deep into React as an example, they're able to do that at multiple levels of maturity. But not just that, they're also able to do hands-on learning. So many of us are not passive learners, we are active learners. Right. For, for us to be able to try on those skills. So that to me is part of the content enrichment that happens. It's not just about passive, it's about active. The second is what I refer to as skills progression. Many of us want yardsticks. Hey, am I making progress? Am I actually moving from step A to step B? So Proside has developed you know, unique insight into what we refer to as skills IQ, where we can exactly tell you how you are doing, where you're moving on, and are you on the path to whatever your learning outcomes are? And that is the second, second biggest thing Skills IQ is pretty unique to ProSight. Not many people, you, anyone to your point can put up content library, which itself is hard, but like to show people that they're making progress. And then the third thing is you have to align that with the organization because it is, think of it as the fidelities, as the Verizons of the Home Depots of the world. They have a learning and development philosophy overall. And how do you integrate into that because you don't want to be an island. You're part of a broader L&D strategy for an organization. So how does that happen? How do you align with that? Because those people, your L&D leaders and your tech leaders are great drivers of innovation. And they are saying, hey, we are offering this for learners to be able to do that. Yeah. So all of those actually give us a winning combination or are required today, frankly, to drive true upskilling and outcomes that organizations can make. And what about getting adoption within organizations? Uh, do you find that that's challenging? Do you find that today everyone's hungry to learn more and it's easy if you just put the tools in place or that organizations really need to motivate people to be improving their skills? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Correct. Like I think there are people who are intrinsically motivated. So those people will naturally gravitate. You offer them the tools and they will naturally go towards that. But then there's a set of population that will, what I refer to as episodical. So they will actually go, oh, I need to do this project. I need to do this piece of work. And then they will go. So they will come and go in batches. And then there are a set of people that you actually have to drive to say, hey, there's a tool that is available to you. I almost equate it to your 401k plan. Like most companies offer a 401k plan. Some people will naturally sign up on the day one on the job. And some people you have to auto-enroll. And some people, like you have to send many reminders to actually say, hey, this is a good thing for you and you should be signing up yeah. for yeah. that. Actually, it's a fantastic analogy because what are you really doing is investing your, in your own future. Absolutely. If a company wants to pay to give you training materials, well, frankly, they're investing in you as an asset. But who owns that asset? Not the company. You own the asset. You know. So if someone else wants to pay to invest in an asset that you own, I say, you know, bring it on. Yeah, no, I, I, I do agree. And I think this is the most progressive organizations that are driving digital transformation recognize that investing in people's skills is important. You know, digital transformation is happens because of two things. As I learned, as we talked about customer centricity and user centricity, which is something that many of us are passionate about. The other is skills. Does our organization have the skills? And many of us know when we need to hire at scale, external hiring takes time, is expensive. So we've got to actually retrain, upskill, reskill our workforce and can keep, especially in the tech space where, where things change on a dime. 
Yeah, I mean, I wonder how far this is going to go. You know, uh, coincidentally, I was chatting earlier today with Heather McGowan, who's going to be on a future podcast and who wrote uh, the book, The Adaptation Advantage. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's all about kind of like the future of work. And I hope I don't mess up trying to articulate part of her point of view here. But I would say, listening to her talk, uh, I think she felt that this was going to become more of a sea change, that this idea of continuous learning was going to be accelerating, accelerating and driving a huge portion of what was going to be successful in companies going forward. And that the companies that are really innovating in this area are going to be the ones that are going to make a difference. And she made an example she mentioned, which is something I'd never heard before, is that Google will now pay for any employee that wants to become a nurse. Like even though... There's no obvious way, of course, Google has some healthcare related stuff, but there's no obvious way, you know, training to become a nurse is going to necessarily help you in your role at Google. But if you want to learn to become a nurse, they will pay for it. It's like this mindset of we want to invest in education, education that aligns with your passion, not just, you know, like you said, the middle level, well, I have a project, I need to learn Python, but like, this is what I want to learn. And their mindset is, we, we want to make sure that that happens. Of course, it's easy for Google when you're floating in money, right? <laughs> so paying for all that stuff. <clears throat> yeah. No. How far will this go? Yeah. So I think the cat is out of the bag on this notion of lifelong learning. And it's it's been out of the bag for a while. Howard, you are a lifelong learner. I'm a lifelong learner. You know, the fact that we went to colleges, our learning did not stop at 21, 22, 23. Uh, in fact, there's a notion of 100-year career where like, people will have between 7 and 15 fundamentally different jobs over their life. I can look at my personal situation and say, hey, I've had at least five fundamentally different roles. And I'm sure like, if many of us look, we will find that situation. So I, I think it is there and it is becoming even more prevalent in that sense. Yeah. Well, Madhur, perhaps my last question for you would be just, I know you've been in big companies and small companies. Any thoughts about the pros and cons, and especially for those who are in big companies, anything you're learning being in a smaller, more nimble, agile, digital company that you'd say, oh man, I wish I'd known this when I was back at, at SAP or at Pearson. I see something now from a different perspective. So two things that I would, I would highlight. First of all, the importance of actually galvanizing teams, whether you're large or small companies, doesn't, does not change, right? You would think that you come into a small company, I'm at a 2,000-person company as opposed to being at SAP, which was almost a 100,000-person company. But the role of leadership, the role of galvanizing teams and motivating them does not change. That is something that does not change. But what does change is your ability to actually move from idea to execution. I used to say at my past companies overall, hey, I can spend three months doing a business case and writing reams and reams of PowerPoint to convince you, or I can use those three months to actually deliver something, right? You know, and, and launch something in the in the marketplace as an MVP. Here we are able to do that. Here we are like the sense of urgency, the sense of actually what it means, everything's measured in terms of what would be the outcome from a customer perspective. And that is something I think I encourage everyone within even large companies. And I think my fellow peers who are chief digital officers, digital change agents, experienced leaders are already doing that. But it is worth spending some time to see how fast things can be. And what are you doing? Keep pushing because, yes, the art of possible is definitely out there. Nice. Well, that's a great note to close on. Matter, thanks so much for joining us. This is great information. Exciting this new chapter that you're in. I can't wait. It feels like you are in just the right place at the right time. So I can't wait to see everything that's going to come from all the innovation that you're going to bring to even further the company you're at. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening to the Winning Digital Customers podcast. And have a great day. Take care.